Phew. Okay, I'm not late for Cinemaholics. That was a close one. Had a feeling Will and John might start recording without me. Hey guys, I'm here. Sorry it took me so long. I was listening to a film podcast and I had to pull over and contain myself because their review of Yes, God, Yes completely missed the point of what, uh, guys? <sighs> Why are you two sitting 10 feet apart and crossing your arms and frowning? Usually you're hugging and giving each other high fives. <laughs> what he said. John, Will, are you two having another fight? You wouldn't understand, Abby. You don't have siblings. Um, okay, but you two aren't siblings. Th thanks a lot, Abby. Real nice. Well, one of you nerds just tell me what this is all about. <sighs> Fine. John won't let me host Cinemaholics this week, even though he promised. John, is this true? I never promised that. I said maybe if I'm desperate, I'll let Will host the show for like a few minutes. You liar. Guys, enough. Well, why don't you just wait until next week? And John, how about from now on, we keep our promises? Whatever. Will has it so easy. All he has to do is show up and disagree with me about every movie we talk about. Oh, I have it easy. John, you get to choose everything we talk about. I wish. I wish. I wish I, wish I could, could be John Will for one day. day. Uh, guys? Are you okay? You both touched the podcast microphone and then started swirling around. Yeah, that was weird. Hey, John, why did, uh, why is my body sitting across from me? Your body? What are you talking about, Will? Maybe I should just start co-hosting the Bacon and Eggs podcast. Wait a second. Did we? Switch bodies? Great. What a disaster. Now I'm stuck wearing this Hawaiian shirt for the rest of the day. You think you have it bad? Now I have to start going through all these emails and tweets asking me questions about Pixar movies. Oh, you think that's bad. Now I need to figure out how DreamWorks animation movies tie together. John? Will? Maybe none of this would have ever happened if the two of you had paused to appreciate the privileges and responsibilities you already have in your own special bodies. You're right, Abby. Clearly the only way out of this mess is to say a bizarre incantation into this clearly magical podcast microphone. Good idea, John. One, two, three. I wish, I wish we, we were back, back in, in our, our own bodies. Did it work? Are we back in the right bodies? Wait, why does my voice sound like Abby's? I'm going to murder you, both of you, for this. Don't worry, we can just try again with this microphone and... Oh no, I dropped it. Oh, great. Now I'm in John's body again. And I'm in Abby's? Wait, but then who are you? Guys, I've completely lost track at this point. This is getting us nowhere. Okay, everybody. I think I know what to do. We should just record the podcast and do our best impressions of each other. That way, no one will even notice. I like that idea a lot. Of course you do, Will. You get to host the show as me, just like you wanted. I don't see what's wrong with that. It's fine, John. Will can host the show just this once. <sighs> fine. But Will, can you do me at least one favor? Sure. After the show, can you deal with all my emails about Pixar theories? Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. 
from the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Will uh, John Negroni. Excuse me. I'm the uh, I do something for Adam Tickets. I forget what it is. And uh, I think I'm the editor in chief of Cinemaholics. That's right. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is the handsome, well-spoken, and wonderful pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. And he also reviews films for Cinemaholics.com. He could do anything. He's Will Ashton. Oh well, hello. From Kansas City, she is the film editor for The Pitch with bylines at Slash Film, Crooked, Marquee, Roger Ebert, too many to count. It's Abby Olchessi. Hi. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics on Cinemaholics.com, including our written reviews and other podcasts for you to enjoy. Please consider sending us an email. We want to hear from you. Cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do a couple things. You could go to patreon.com slash cinemaholics and become a patron. You could check out our merch page on cinemaholics.com, buy some sweet, sweet merch like hoodies and t-shirts and mugs, or you can leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen, uh, just to give us a, a nice little bump so people can find us on those apps. We really appreciate all the support of our listeners. You are the best. We have a packed episode this week. We're going to be talking about Freaky and Ammonite, Hillbilly, Hillbilly Elegy, <laughs> lots of movies this week. But for off topics, we've got plenty for that as well. So first up, our latest extra milestone is now out. Sam Noland and Adonis Gonzalez talked about three awesome film anniversaries. They talked about Dances with Wolves, which just turned 30 years old. The Magnificent Seven, the 1960 version, and Charles Burnett's To Sleep With Anger, another 1990 film, so that also celebrates 30 years. It's a great show. Definitely check it out. It's on the Cinemaholics feed, or you can find it on the Extra Milestone podcast feed as well. All right. Uh, we've been listening, or listening, we've been watching a lot of stuff this week, and obviously movies as usual, but I did want to make some time for some new series this past week that we have been catching up on. First, I want to talk about Dash and Lily. Abby, will have you? Ha, do you know anybody who's anybody else who's been watching Dash and Lily on Netflix? I know one person. His name is John Negroni. <laughs> I I actually don't know anybody either. Although according to my Netflix algorithm, it looks like maybe my mom has watched a couple of episodes. So I could be wrong about that. Okay. So this is a a new Netflix kind of like Christmas holiday romantic comedy series i think it's only supposed to be one season because it's based on a book and it stars austin abrams and somebody who i remember her from good boys so you might recognize her midori francis and it's a love story it's only eight episodes really short i binged the whole thing and look i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say like yes dashingly amazing perfect whatever because that's not really the case but it's November. It's too early, some would say, for Christmas stuff. I know we have a, a review of a Christmas movie in this episode, but I have to say, I've been feeling like a Grinch the last year. 2020 has been rough, you know, lots of lows, very few highs. And Dash and Lily, it, it kind of gave me Christmas spirit again. And it, I've been thinking about this show for some weird reason all week. Like, I, I do not understand why. I don't know what it is. It has like some kind of formula that hit me in just the right way to the point where I'm still thinking about the show like almost a week later. 
So uh, just saying, if anybody's curious about it, it's it's really, really lovely and cute and charming and sweet and funny and it's it's really cool. It's it's uh, it's very cozy. So I have I have to recommend Dash and Lily to anybody who would normally be interested in that. It really is like a romantic comedy movie spread out over eight episodes in like a good way. Uh, not like the Hallmark variety. It's got a little bit more edge than that. But between this and Holiday, I'm really happy with Netflix's like rom-com Christmas output so far. They're they're batting pretty well for me. But uh, another thing that I caught up on this past week that I know Abby, you're pretty caught up on as well. The first three episodes of The Mandalorian season two, Abby, what what, what do you think of this season so far? I, I think I know you you like The Mandalorian series in general, right? I do. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I feel like uh, this season so far really feels like it's kind of picking up on the strengths of the first one. Um, one of the things that I really like about uh, that series as a whole is just the way that it kind of explores different different areas and different parts of the Star Wars universe that like don't always get a ton of attention or like we might not have thought about at all before. Um so like I've enjoyed the inclusion of uh, the frog couple in the last couple of episodes, uh, trying to get Wonderful. their their eggs fertilized. Sorry, they're trying to get their eggs fertilized, not flirtilized. That's something different. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I've I've enjoyed that. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, a slightly more expanded role for Amy Sedaris in the last couple of episodes because she was one of my favorite parts of the first season. Um, and yeah, I've I've been really liking it. I think also as a on a, on a spiritual note, I feel like there is some interesting expansion so far this season on uh, kind of the the themes of uh, religious deconstruction that I think started to show up towards the end of the uh, of the first season. So uh, yeah, if if the Mandalorian ends up going in the direction that I think it might long term, um, I would be really interested to see uh, kind of the takes that arise out of that. Somebody with a stronger evangelical background than mine, I think could uh, potentially have some really interesting things to say. Yeah, there there are a lot of implications from that third episode that really intrigued me. And, you know, I think my favorite thing about this show in general is that it finally does what I think people have been asking of Star Wars for a long time, which is make this universe feel a lot bigger. Uh, So it's what you're saying. Yeah, it does explore stories we don't usually get from the movies. But then also it really shows that like people don't know about the stuff that goes on in the movies like people are like what's a jedi stuff like that which is great because it harkens back to like a new hope where that was just sort of a thing where people are like i don't what the force what's that you know like sometimes i think like we get kind of caught up in all the star wars lore because of the prequels and then you know where it just everything seems larger than life and the mandalorian is like so stripped down it's got a western feel timothy oliphant gets to do really cool things in this and yeah it's just it's just a fun show big budget show on disney plus and it's it's their flagship series for a reason so maybe maybe we'll check in again on mandalorian season two once this season ends i forget how many episodes it's going to be i think it's eight maybe i'm not sure but okay. maybe seven. I don't know. That said, I, I definitely am enjoying it so far. Another show that I've been enjoying is uh, Alex Ryder season one. I forgot to mention it last week uh, before we recorded, but this is a new show on Amazon that uh, they're releasing it with Amazon and IMDb TV, which I think that means. So I think the way you can watch this is on Amazon, but I think there might be ads, which is a bummer if that's the case. I don't know how it is in every country. Even still, I really dig this show, 
And I think a lot of people should give it a chance. I never read the Alex Ryder books, but I reached out to a couple of people I know who have read the books who are like, yes, I want to watch this show because they're maybe disappointed by the adaptation, the 2006, 2007 movie that came out called Alex Ryder's Stormbreaker. I think Alex Pettifer was the main person in that. And yeah, that you could kind of tell from the poster that that's going for a certain type of feel that isn't exactly everybody's cup of tea. But this this show, this adaptation is really fun to watch, really bingeable. Uh, it's only eight episodes. And it's one of those shows where I had a really hard time like can, keeping myself from like watching the next episode because it was such a great ongoing narrative. The story is about a teenage James Bond. He like grew up and his uncle was like secretly training him to be a spy, but he never realized it. So when a bunch of stuff happens, he has all these spy skills that he sort of discovers he can do. And then he sort of gets into this wider world of like intrigue and stuff in order to find out some answers to like what happened to his family. And it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And the main guy in it, Otto Ferrant, is really good. And it it's a show that's pretty self-aware. It's got some silliness and goofiness in it, but it's also just really well-rounded in terms of its cast and it's a really good budget for the show. And it's just really, it's, it's a really cool adaptation. I think they really nailed it. So that's Alex Ryder season one. Definitely check it out. Last thing for me, Inside Pixar, the new Disney plus kind of little series, because it's very short. Like every episode is like maybe 10 minutes, but I'm really enjoying this so far. The first episode is really cool. It's it's kind of like I was explaining to Abby and Will off the air. It's kind of like if you had the behind the scenes special features of Soul, the next Pixar movie, but as a series on Disney Plus, which I'm a huge champion of that. I don't think there are nearly enough behind the scenes featurettes that are being made because those are the things that get people to love movies even more, like on another level. I don't know about YouTube, but like when I was growing up and we had VHS and we had DVDs and stuff, uh, mainly DVDs because VHS didn't have special features. But on the DVDs, like I would always like pour through the special features, the director's commentary, because you get to see like how they make things and how they make creative decisions. And Inside Pixar kind of gets into that world. The first episode uh, is uh, Ken Power his story, and he's the co-writer and co-director of the new Pixar movie Soul. And he tells like these really fascinating stories about how he took this, he, he's a, as a black man, how he was able to inf- help like bring more authenticity to the story with a predominantly black cast. And it's a really great overview of how creativity and diversity can kind of come together. It's a great showcase for Pixar, very PR, of course, it's very glossed over. It's not a, a challenging show. It's made, you know, by Disney. So that's kind of what you have to expect, but it is in that mood of special features. So that's why I definitely think it's really worth checking out because you do get a new level of insight into the company. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really loving it so far. You also get like episodes about how the art direction at Pixar gets done and uh, just how people like like review dailies. And it, it's really cool stuff. It's really cool that this exists. And if you're a fan of Pixar movies, this is a must watch for sure. So that is Inside Pixar. Like I said, it's on Disney Plus right now. So I I was kind of looking at the streaming services of the last year and like which ones have had the most impact. And even though that Netflix has been for us, like the main streaming service where we review things, like we review things for HBO, obviously, and, and Amazon, but definitely not as much as Netflix. And I think it's interesting how Disney Plus has kind of 
found so much success without like a lot of flashy movies dominating week to week. It's only been out for a year, but yeah, between like Mandalorian and Hamilton and the clone wars, like they're coming out with things, but they're still kind of building up their catalog of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think we got the news this past week that they're at like 73 million subscribers, which is huge. Like that's insane that they got that many paid subscribers in just a year. So that's it. Oh, and I forgot Mulan. <laughs> that was the big one, huh? All right, Will, you've also been watching stuff. You're kind of caught up on, uh, well, not caught up. You you saw some things for TIFF and they're coming out now. So we thought it'd be fun if you kind of like walked the listeners through what are some things that they might be able to catch at drive-ins or if it's safe for them theatrical uh some some new stuff out right now yeah so um three films i saw at the virtual tiff this year have come out either like you said theatrically or on streaming services the first i'll go i'll start with uh wolf walkers because um i wrote a review for that and i also talked about that in our tiff episode so i don't want to spend too much time uh reiterating why i said both in both of those but um that's a new film from Tom Moore and then director Rod Ross Stewart. Uh, Tom Moore is the guy who did like Song of the Sea and Secret of the Kells, which are two uh, very well acclaimed Irish animated films. They're done like the hand drawn style. They have a very kind of folksy fable feel to them that I think yeah. a lot of people really appreciate and like. Um, this is a I, cartoon saloon. Yeah, cartoon saloon. And um, I think, uh, like I said before, like I think the story itself is maybe a little too uh, simplistic to its fault, but I do think the simplicity of it is the charm. And I think that's what people are really going to be endeared by. And uh, I can easily see this one finding an audience the same way that those two films have. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'd risk seeing it in theaters, even though it's a shame to miss this one in theaters. Cause it looks so gorgeous. Obviously the animation is, I think the, the high point of the film. And I think that's what people are really going to appreciate and admire even more than the story itself. But it's very well done. It's very sweet. It's easily very family accessible. It's probably the most accessible to American audience, I think, of the three films, even though those two first films were um, accessible as well. I think this one has more of a universal feel to it that will make it a big crowd pleaser when it's available on Apple TV. That's probably when people will be hearing about it more because I imagine that's when people will be checking it out, especially because they believe it's coming out on Apple TV like around either like early December or late yeah. November. So like around the Christmas season. That's when we'll probably be talking about it on the show because we thought right. about talking about it this week, like letting you do a full on yeah. review. But, you know, it'd probably be more fun if all three of us get to talk. about Right. It when, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just I, I figured I'd just be reiterating what I said before. So I just wanted to kind of get that one out of the way that I saw and like it. I'd, I'd probably give it like a high B. Um, the other one from Tiff that I saw was I Am Greta, which is another one I wrote a review for. That's the documentary from director Nathan Grossman. That is about Greta Thunberg, who is the um, teenage activist who has been fighting for climate change throughout the past couple of years. Um, obviously she's been a focal point on social media and uh, you know, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I find it personally hard to fight against a young girl who's just very plainly sp speaking about the dangers of a world coming apart. But uh, clearly there are people who feel emboldened to uh, say bad things to her. But the documentary itself is mostly just trying to be a like window into her personal life. Like who is the person behind these speeches and uh, all these like rallies and stuff like that. And I think it, it's an interesting look at her life, but um, the movie itself is obviously uh, to use a term you just used recently, very PR. It's definitely a type of film that feels like it's, it's uh, made to kind of just like sell the brand, I guess of Greta Thunberg, which is a weird thing to say, but, 
Um, I think it's well done. Like it's well produced. I think it, it achieves what it sets out to do. I don't think it's thematically like super compelling. And if you already know a decent bit about her life and her career at this point, you're not really going to learn that much. It's not too inviting in that sense, but I do think it is well done for what it is. And obviously I think if you don't know about Greta Thunberg at this point, or you don't know a lot about her beyond like maybe a few things, it is worth a watch. Cause you know, she has done a lot of very fascinating, incredible things at a young age. And uh, I do think she is a compelling figure, especially as someone who like me is on the spectrum. So um, if you want to check that one out, if you want to learn more about her, I think it's a worthwhile watch, but nothing like mandatory or something. It's not like an amazing documentary, but another documentary I did see at TIFF that I really did enjoy, which is the new Werner Herzog film fireball visitors from darker worlds, which is available now, I believe on Apple TV. Um, This one is just on the service right now. It's on in theaters. It's uh, something you can stream right now on the site and I would recommend it. It's his third film, I believe this year after um, family romance LLC and then another documentary that I'm blanking on the title right now. But uh, you know, Herzog, I believe he's like in his late sixties or early seventies right now, but he's like churning movies out uh, like there's no tomorrow. And uh, if you uh, follow his filmography, you can know that that nihilistic uh, mindset is maybe not inappropriate, but um, this one it's a documentary about meteors and comets and then like the way in which like religions and cultural things have been impacted or changed by these sightings and uh, outerworldly activities. And uh, I I've heard some people say it's a lesser Herzog film, which I think is a shame because I think it is really fun and enjoyable as it is. I mean, it's definitely, you know, a quintessential Herzog film. It's a lot of him like narrating a lot of him talking ponderously about the universe, um, him just kind of interviewing these cool science people talking about cool science things. And uh, I guess in that sense, if you're not really into that or if you find Herzog style to be a little uh, tiresome, perhaps I don't know why, but I'm, I'm sure somebody feels that way. Uh, you may not enjoy this one as much, but I had a good, I got a lot out of it. I, I, I found it very fun and enjoyable and I learned quite a bit too. Um, this was also directed by Clive uh, Owenheimer, who is, I believe, a like prominent science figure. This is his uh, directorial debut. Uh, I believe like he pro- volcanologist. Or yeah, volcano that's expert, right. right. Yeah, I believe he produced one or two of uh, his other nature documentaries. But this is his directorial debut alongside Werner Herzog. So uh, I think. Other, it's sorry, yeah. is the other documentary you're talking about? Are you talking about Nomad, the Bruce Chatwin thing? Yeah, that's it. I believe it hit film festivals last year, but it came out digitally this yeah. year. Um, so, you know, the dude keeps busy. He's also in the aforementioned Mandalorian, uh, not as much as I would have hoped apparently, but, not, not um, season two, just season. Yeah. Two. That's what I mean. Uh, I, he was the main reason I wanted to check out the show and then I found out he's only in three episodes. So it's like, why bother? But I'm sure it's a good show, but, um, <laughs> uh, it's a fun documentary. I gave it a B as well. Um, and I gave, I'm Greta B minus, um, it's, you know, I, I enjoy it. I think it's fun. I don't think everyone's going to love it. But if you like Herzog or you want to check out his stuff after watching, say, The Mandalorian, uh, it's a worthwhile film. And it's definitely a fun one to get into his filmography. Uh, the other things I watched were a another Apple TV documentary called uh, Bruce Springsteen's Letter to You, uh, similar to Western Stars, I believe, two years ago. This is just a uh look at his music career uh as opposed to that one which is just more of a concert film for that album this is actually like a making of with the e street band and you just see uh how they made this new album and you know i always find as you were like suggesting like the creative process like just learning how things are made from an artistic standpoint i just think is always fun and always interesting and uh likewise you know i i think it's interesting to see how they craft this album i don't think it's like super thematically 
deep or anything. They, there's a theme throughout, though, about like mortality and then like Bruce Springsteen, similar to the last documentary, just kind of coming to terms with the fact that he is in his twilight years and uh, accepting that, you know, his uh, his years are f- fading away and that he may, you know, for all he knows, this might be the last album. I would hope not, but you never know, um, you know, just him coming to terms with that is a focal point of the documentary but by and large it's fine you know it's 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 decently made it's shot in black and white for no particular reason other than to be artistic i believe but there is like kind of like old-fashioned photography feel to it that is uh enjoyable and uh yeah i mean it's fun if you like bruce springsteen if you're not a fan you may not get much out of it but uh i don't know why you'd watch it if you're not a fan of bruce springsteen the uh, that'd last be, one that'd be yeah. funny <laughs> <clears throat> yeah but i mean it's on apple tv plus so i mean I'm sure somebody watched uh, Curiosity if they weren't a fan of his music. But um, the last film I watched, this is a, a film that's a couple weeks old now, but I just got a chance to see it, is a uh, coming of age dramedy film called. I don't know if I can actually say this title without. Do I have to censor it or can I just say it? I think we'll be OK. I think we'll we'll make this exception and we should be fine. OK, well, I'll, I'll say it both ways. and You can decide uh, S.H.I.T. House or shit house. Um that is the directorial debut of uh, a man named Cooper Raft or Rafe, I believe, um, who wrote, directed, co-edited, produced and starred the film, started in the film uh, at the age of 23. So a uh, bit of a show off, I guess. Um, he he's uh, in the he film. thinks he's Orson Welles, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, um, he, he stars in the film with a uh, actress, I think. People might know from like the art house scene a little bit more than like a mainstream films, but her name is uh, Dylan Galello, G-E-L-U-L-A, um, who's a big uh, Twitter presence as well. But she did um, like support the girls and she was in Horse Girl, a film we talked about earlier this year. Um, and she's a very talented young actress. And I think she does some of her best work here, especially in a character that, you know, isn't as fleshed out as our main lead. But um, yeah, she was in um, Flower her smell and uh, people might recognize her from casual and uh, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Um, Yeah. And this film, uh, you know, it has a intentional kind of like before feel to it where it's just two uh, college freshmen. um, Just actually, I think she's a sophomore, but um, young fresh underclassmen uh, just talking about their lives, kind of like talking about this, like displacement depression that can sometimes come from people who are going into college and not really finding themselves the way that some people do at that age and at that time in their lives. And uh, it's a very adept and uh, I think very sweet film that um, I, I think it, it doesn't quite balance its tonal things as well as I think it could. But because it's the first film, you do forgive it because I think what does work really does work well. And uh, it's a obviously great showcase for this young guy who's, you know, clearly uh, has dreams of doing some lot of big things in film and he's pr- proving himself quite well here. This is supposed to be, I believe at the South by Southwest film festival before that got canceled. Uh, but it's now available on VOD as well as in select theaters and, and select drive-ins as well. Uh, and I would recommend it. I'd give it a high beam minus. I think it's a solid film and uh, it's very easy to see why this one was appealing to a lot of audiences and critics alike. So that's my very long winded series of uh, mini reviews this week. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, a lot. yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, sure. um, like catching the listeners up there's a, there's a lot of stuff coming out right now and that's just going to continue for the rest of the month so uh 
we'll try to review as much as we can. It's it's a weird year. There's a lot of stuff like in this is usually my my favorite time of the year for movies because usually what we could do is we could go to the local art house theater and watch like a bunch of the Oscar season things ahead of time. And it's really annoying because like some of the theaters are open and you can technically do it, but if you don't feel safe going to a theater, there's no way to watch these movies yet and it's just, you know, it's frustrating. And uh, I really enjoy this like time of the year where you get to do that and like sit in a theater with a bunch of people and watch all of these like films that premiered at festivals. You may already have an idea if they're good or not. And yeah, I'm just a little sad. We don't, we don't have that experience this year. Hopefully next year that'll be different. Okay. Last week for our listener voicemails, we asked all of you listeners, okay, who should direct the inevitable post-Trump movie? We got a lot of responses for this one, like way more than uh, I was expecting. And we won't. We don't have a chance to uh, share all of them, but uh, here, here's uh, here's one in particular that was really great. We, we got this from uh, someone named Bowie. Here, here's what Bowie thinks. Here's who Bowie thinks should direct the Trump movie whenever it comes out, and if we have to have it. I love this question so much. So I'm gonna throw a name in here that is probably pretty strange or unexpected. And that is Jane Campion. Jane Campion is one of my favorite directors. And the reason I would like to see her direct the eventual Trump movie, even though it would probably never, ever happen. But the reason I would like to see it is because in every single one of her films, there's this kind of strange uneasiness, like something I love about her work is that no matter the genre she has dabbled in, there's this uneasiness that I don't know how to explain that I think would be really effective and impactful in this movie. And I also am just fascinated at the differences that may potentially emerge between a female and a male identifying person directing it. Like when I think about how David, what David Fincher would focus on versus like what Jane Campion would focus on, I feel like they would be very, very, very different films. And I wish in my dream world, we would get all of these directors to make this film. And then we would do a marathon screening of all of them and then do a long about which one was the best and why. And then we would assign various awards for all of them for like, you know, best character development, best wig, uh, best spray tan, you know, (laughs) all of those important things. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really curious to see who, who else people might pick here, and would love to know your thoughts on my suggestion. All right, thank you, boy. That was very interesting. It sounds like she wanted to do like a Pepsi challenge, almost kind of for like all of these movies. The only thing is, like, you would have to like watch a lot of movies. That- yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think I have the stamina for that. Like, especially if they're all like the Trump. Yeah, movie. That's, especially that's really as a hard. marathon, that would be. Oh, uh, no. Yeah. If yeah, there's like yeah. a therapist on site to right. talk to us afterward, I feel like maybe I, I could. We already have a marathon. There's a marathon. It's called you know. the news. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Okay. All right. Sure. I tease. I tease. 
But I did. I mean, I told you this um, off the air, but I, I wish I had given more women directors as suggestions because I think inherently a woman's perspective on the story would be far more interesting to me than male perspective, just because I think it would be a lot more different, a lot more unique, and it would say maybe a lot more things that people wouldn't expect from the story. But um, yeah, Jean Campion, a filmmaker, I need to watch a lot more of her films, truth be told, but everything I've seen from her obviously showcases why she's such a great and underrated talent. So I'd be down for this one for sure. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fascinating answer. And I really like the uh, the justification that uh, that Bowie gave for why she made the choice that she did. I think that's a that that's that's a, a thing that I would be really interesting, interested to see. And I also think that it would give us a interesting, more nuanced take on some of the people surrounding Trump, maybe particularly the women surrounding Trump. Um, actually, I, I think I, I would love to see Jane Campion make a movie that uh, features Melania and Ivanka pretty heavily. I could I could see that being an interesting take. Maybe an adaptation of the, uh, there's that book, Melania and Me, that her friend wrote, like something like that would be kind of interesting, maybe, who knows. Hmm. Uh, we we have a lot of other voicemails. Um, they're all pretty short, though. That was the longest one, so I thought it would make sense to start with that. But uh, we can play the rest of them here. We won't go through each one in detail, but definitely want to, really great suggestions, so I wanted to air them. So here we go. Wouldn't it just be incredible if we got a Donald Trump a uh, film that was directed by Ari Aster. I know that I would watch that, but uh, I'm not sure about other people here. Not sure who would make the best director for a Trump movie, but I think if the screenplay for a Trump movie were to be written either by the Monty Python or by Sacha Baron Cohen, I think it would be absolutely brilliant. Hey, Cinemaholics, I'll give you uh, an answer on a more lighter note. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that it should be M. Night Shyamalan. And, you know, the ending is leading to some twist as to who Trump really is. uh, And it's revealed at the very end. You should, you know, take a step back and think about it. You know, everything is building up to this twist in the tale. I don't know who the best director would be, but just as long as it's narrated by Ron Howard, I'll be happy, especially after the whole Four Seasons thing this past weekend. Uh, I really think that uh, Ron Howard needs to be narrating this. All right. Thank you, everybody who had some suggestions. Very fascinating, uh, eclectic um, uh, variety there. Uh, I thought the one that really stood out to me was Ari Aster. Uh, I don't know about you, Mm -hmm. Sue. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. Um, I, I think he could definitely do like the he could capture the dread and anxiety that I think most of the country has felt in the last four years. Um, yeah. That could be I think that could be really good. Um, I also approve of the the idea of needing to have Ron Howard narrate the whole thing. I don't know how Ron Howard and Ari Aster would work well together, but like maybe we could make it happen. Yeah, it's strange like, bedfellows. Ari yeah. development. Sure. Oh, that kind. Come on. Think about it. Sure. I mean, I love Literally a good the pun. same story yeah. as, the, <laughs> as the show. Yeah, I do think he said that he was going to try to do like a rom-com next. So I'm very curious to see where Ari Aster goes with his career, if that includes a Trump, a Trump bike. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, Ari I Aster rom-com sounds yeah, hard but, enough. That's yeah. I mean, if it's Ari Aster, I'm sure I'll end up seeing it, but I don't think. Oh, I'd sure. Yeah. I don't think I'd be the one I'm looking forward to of his filmography, but um, I had to chuckle a little bit when the listener said that on a lighter note, they would pick M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Which, wonderful. That just sums up this whole <laughs> this whole uh, time and era, I think, pretty well. Is that on a yeah. light note, M. Night Shyamalan. 
Uh-huh. If it ends up like if we've all been living in some village situation this entire time or sixth sense, like, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be annoyed, but I wouldn't be surprised. So I could see that. I'm trying to remember who directed Idiocracy. I can't remember. Oh, Mike Judge. Oh, Mike Judge. Yeah. Oh, that that's who that's that's my new pick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's I think that could that would work a little bit too well, I think. Yeah. yeah like, like kind of like a Silicon Valley kind of mood. Maybe. I don't know. Um, For sure. Sure. But all right, thank you everybody who responded. If you want to leave a voicemail, uh, all you have to do is check us out on the Swell app. And we ask questions every week that you can leave a voicemail. And as you just heard, you can listen to it on the air. And we highly, highly, highly appreciate all the participation. It's really awesome. This week's question, so kind of taking a note from one of the movies we're reviewing this week, and somebody mentioned Ron Howard, what is the best and the worst Ron Howard film we were kind of talking about this off the air it's like ron howard he has a very interesting filmography some really great films very eclectic very eclectic very journeyman kind of uh Mm -hmm. director from like apollo 13 to rush to solo a star wars story i mean this guy is a kind of a crazy career uh, in his bag so we were curious what are some of your favorite ron howard films or uh, especially going into his new one which we'll talk about shortly hillbilly elegy so let us know on the swell app you can find a link to that in the show notes and thank you as always for participating let's get into our reviews this week lots to get to and uh, we had kind of a supersized extra off topics kind of section there so let's get into the reviews uh we've got a really fascinating one to start with it's a new film called freaky Good morning. morning. That's me, Millie. Ordinary, boring Millie. I love your dress. I think I saw it at Discount Bonanza. (laughs) Okay, so I was never the most popular. Homecoming's this weekend. Booker is gonna be at the dance. And boys never really noticed me. (laughs) Honestly, if this was a horror movie, I'd be one of the first ones to get killed. Cute, creepy dude in the mask. Like I said. (laughs) But actually, it turns out. Where am I? I didn't get killed. Oh my god, why do I sound like that? I woke up in the killer's body. (laughs) The Blissfield Butcher strikes again. Don't freak out. (laughs) You're black! I'm gay! We are so dead! Ow! Will you stop? It's me! It's Millie! Hill, Hill, Blissfield, I feel our glory and our might. Oh my god! Freaky is the latest comedy horror film directed by Christopher Landon. You might recognize his name. He directed Happy Death Day, Happy Death Day to You, or his mm-hmm. two most famous. And uh, we're fans of those movies over here on Cinema Hollywood. Yeah. I know you are, Will, especially. Absolutely. Yeah, we we had a fierce debate about Happy Death Day back in the day. And uh, I think, Abby, you you like those movies too, don't you? I think we talked about it. I do. I like them both a lot. Yeah. They're really fun. And Freaky is in the same spirit of those movies. I think uh, Landon has even said it takes place in the same sort of universe where it's really like a movie that starts with a pun. And even though the film is called Freaky, they wanted to call it Freaky Friday the 13th. And so the idea there is you're mashing up Freaky Friday and Friday the 13th. Simple, right? Yeah. It's a log line, but yeah, it's basically the premise yeah. of the film as well. 
Exactly. That's the premise of the film. Really easy to explain. It stars Catherine Newton and Vince Vaughn. Catherine Newton is kind of like this gawky teenager. I mean, it's Catherine Newton, so she's obviously gorgeous, but the movie does the thing where it's like everybody thinks that she's not cool. Uh, Your favorite trope. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Hey, some some movies and shows do it well or do it well enough. Uh, this isn't really exactly uh, the best example of it, but it's decent. Uh, that said, she's kind of a nerdy teenager who doesn't have a lot of confidence, and she somehow swaps bodies with a serial killer named, Vin, uh, not named Vince Vaughn, played by Vince Vaughn. Uh, he's known as The Butcher. And this movie is just like a grab bag of tropes, right? It takes a lot of like slasher tropes. It takes some like teen comedy tropes and it really just like blends them all together. A lot of this movie is Vince Vaughn having to act like he is a teen girl and like get in a bunch of misadventures and try to make sure people, because people think that he is super scary and murderous, but he's actually the Catherine Newton character the whole time. There's a lot of laughs in this. There's some like actual like gore in this. Like it's it really goes up for the R-rated horror. And it's available in theaters right now. It's Blumhouse. And I saw it at the drive-in. And this is one of my favorite drive-in experiences I've ever had. And that said, I haven't had a ton. But this is like such a good drive-in movie. Like I thoroughly enjoyed sitting in my car, munching on some popcorn and watching this. I, I'm a big fan, but uh, Abby Olchessy, well, what, what do you think of Freaky? Um, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, um, I I agree that it would probably make a great uh, drive-in theater experience. I'm a little bit bummed I didn't get to see it that way myself. Um, but yeah, I I went in expecting that this would be really fun. I'm a huge fan of uh, both the Happy Death Day movies and... Um, and just, yeah, Christopher Landon in general, I think is really, really going places. I thought the trailer for this looked really strong. So like I, I treated my screener of this like a, like a fine wine. I just like got super cozy, got all my favorite foods together and just like sat on the couch and was like, we're going to do this thing. And it paid off massively. Um, it's, I think it's really sweet. Surprisingly, it's, uh, obviously very funny. Um, the gore, I feel like goes a little over the top i feel like this could very easily have been a pg-13 horror and a strong one um but some of the as as much as i enjoy some of the icky squicky places that it goes some of it feels a little tonally unnecessary like it doesn't quite jive with the rest of the movie um but that said i think the rest of it is really strong um and i think vince vaughn is amazing in this like just surprisingly good um that's i think um, a trope and a, a joke that it would not surprise me to have seen it in a much more cartoonish over the top performance, especially from him. Um, like if this movie had come out five years ago, I would not have had an interest in it. Um, just based on some of his, his previous work, uh, had, had Christopher Landon not been at the helm of this one, had it been somebody I didn't know, I probably wouldn't have trusted it as much, honestly. Um, but he puts in some really good, uh, physical performing here. Uh, I think it's clear that he has kind of, he, he spent some time kind of studying Catherine Newton's, uh, behavior and movements and kind of incorporated that into his performance as a, you know, a large middle-aged serial killer man who has a, uh, teenage girl stuck inside of him. (laughs) Um, it's, it's much more nuanced. It feels a little more like weirdly natural. Uh, it feels like he's, he's playing, he's playing Millie that that character Catherine Newton's character and not uh a man trying to act like a girl. So yeah, I found it 
overall really impressive. That I think is one of its more impressive elements. Yeah, one thing I really like about this movie is that it understands how extremely absurdly tall Vince Vaughn is because he just towers over everyone. And I really appreciated that. There's no like camera tricks to try to like keep him in frame sometimes. Sometimes he's just like towering over the other characters, but it works thematically because that is part of the joke. And when he is like the serial killer character, he's like genuinely pretty menacing. So yeah, very fun movie. This, I forgot to mention, this premiered at Beyond Fest, uh, I think like a month ago, something like that. And if you're not familiar, so Christopher Landon, he's also been a screenwriter for a while. One of his first things was Disturbia, which this shares eh, some superficial DNA with. Uh, He's also been a a screenwriter for a lot of the Paranormal Activity movies, um, including the best one, in my opinion, Paranormal Activity 3. And so that said, uh, and also Marked Ones, the other best one, I would say. That said, Will Ashton, what did you think of Freaky? Uh, yeah, I'm going to echo what you and Abby said, I'd say. Um, I've been a big fan of Christopher Landon's work. Um, I'd say with the exception of maybe um, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, that was like the only one that I think was maybe a miss for me. I've really enjoyed his work as a writer and director. And uh, I, I definitely think with the Happy Death Day movies, he came into his own as a filmmaker in a way that I felt was really exciting and uh, liberating, I felt, as he was coming to really find his style. And I think this movie, like you said, is an extension of that only now he has the chance to um, be even more liberated because he has the R rating at his disposal. Um, as far as this movie goes, I mean, I think at the heart of the happy death day movies and this one, he's making movies about self-acceptance um, with uh, happy death day. It's about like kind of overcoming your past traumas to find yourself and to uh, be your best self. And I think, you know, it's, it's done in a way that's like, kind of superficial or like kind of on the surface but um i think he does it really well it has a pop music aesthetic i think to uh those films i think is really appealing and fun and uh this one i I did appreciate that he was finally able to indulge in the horror aspect more because um the first movie of happy death day he he kind of felt like he had to be restrained obviously because the rating and then the sequel for that movie was basically a sci-fi film. It's like more in line with like Back to the Future than the uh, uh, slasher horror film. This one, I actually appreciate the gore and the uh, over the top uh, deaths in this just because they were so uh, uh, clearly like inspired and creative for him. Like it felt like he like got weight off his shoulder and could really have fun with them. Um, If anything, I felt like they kind of were lacking in the middle. Like it felt like the beginning and the end of the film was where it was like an actual slasher and the middle of it just was like a like high school comedy. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the plot, this one, it, it maybe is a little too um, predictable, I guess, in terms of its plotting. Like I was hoping it would be a little bit more subversive, like the Happy Death Day movies, which I think are able to follow a familiar format. But they they have a lot of surprises and a lot of things that play against expectations that I really appreciate and enjoy. And I think this movie does to an extent, but maybe not as much as I was hoping for, which was a little disappointing. But I do think like you two were saying the two lead performances here are really what shine, particularly Vince Vaughn, who uh, I'll echo what you were saying, John, like, I feel like this is a performance I've been wanting to see from Vince Vaughn for a long time, because for like, I'd say like maybe like a decade and a half, he was just basically playing the same character. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Like just playing like kind of like snarky. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Sounded like you were choking up a little sorry. bit. You were no, just no. Like so yeah, upset. No. <laughs> no, I just had a frog in my throat. I apologize. But like, um, it's fun. He just he's been trying yeah. so hard. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, no, I just had a frog in my throat. But um, no, I mean, he has he was just kind of playing that uh, like sarcastic uh, smarmy guy for like a decade and a half. 
And, uh, you know, like with uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 a couple years ago, which I, I think is his best performance to date. Um, that was like Good the first movie. movie. Yeah, I really like that one a lot. Um, that was like the the, the the that was the performance where it was like, oh, yeah, well, if you take away his smirk, he's kind of terrified <laughs> because if he's come charging at you, you're going to be dead because, uh, you know, he's just such a tall, like muscular guy. In this movie, I like that they're able to play with that, obviously, with him being the slasher. But also because like, you know, he's embodying a different character. He was able to show his range as an actor in a way that. And personally, like Abby was saying, impressed me as far as his range and the fact that he was able to play it up in a over the top fashion, but not over the top to the point where it was like a just one big joke. Like it didn't feel like he had to like make his voice higher and like, you know, like play like an affectation or something like that. He does bring a lot of vulnerable sincerity to the role in a way that doesn't feel like winking or like too over the top. And I think that's the key to film success is the fact that he's able to nail that balance through Christopher Landon's help, obviously, as a director. But the fact that he's able to channel that in a really effective and fun and entertaining performance is the the root of the film's success. And I think it is another win for Christopher Landon, for sure. You know, I think this this movie raises a lot of like weird questions uh, and weird in a good sense, I think. Uh, so particularly, like a lot of this movie gets into like gender fluidity. And it's not too afraid. At times, it's a little afraid to go all the way with it um, with like some key camera tricks. Do you think um, that was him or the studio, though? I felt like that was kind of the studio. I don't know. I, I generally but, don't know. I wouldn't be surprised either way. Yeah, I, I didn't. Know. That was a genuine question. Like, I don't know. Uh, but clearly, like, that's something on the movie's mind because there's a lot of implications for, first of all, like the serial killer, when the serial killer is a teenage girl, like choosing to like dress in a certain way. And like kind of like getting into like a more feminine side is kind of interesting. And there's also some like implications for how being in this like man's body somehow like empowers the protagonist. And I guess I just wasn't expecting that. Like I wasn't expecting the movie to kind of explore some of those avenues. It doesn't do it super well necessarily, um, or at least it doesn't do it very thoroughly, I should say. But I appreciated that. I appreciated that it, it went to some avenues. I think the least interesting things in this movie are probably, in my opinion, when Catherine Newton is the serial killer. She's just kind of, I don't know. I think the serial killer in general is kind of blank and uninteresting. And it kind of shows when the motivations don't really make any sense for that character. Like, why are they doing any of this? Why are why go to school like if you're after this thing i don't know it, a lot of it just sort of is like brushed over for like plot convenience and it's a movie that hopefully you're not overthinking it but if you are you're going to have some issues like for example the, the high school has a cryo chamber for some reason that like has very deadly implications that i thought was like very strange but i guess you could chalk that up to like this movie is pretty over the top I, I was going to say, I think if we're if we're saying that this is set in the same universe as Happy Death Day one and two, I feel like it's not completely right. out of character <laughs> yeah, for yeah. there to be a cryo chamber in a high school. Like it <laughs> exactly, does. It makes yeah. about as much sense as like the science project in, in Happy Death mm -hmm. Day 2 does. Absolutely. I'd be good with a crossover. Um, I also appreciate Chris Landon's continued commitment to uh, absurd mascots. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. With the baby mascot in the Happy Death Day movies. And then the, like, what is it like a beaver or something in this one? Yeah. Yeah. They play um, that for laughs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like we've been saying, I'm a, I'm a fan. Um, did you have anything to add, though, Abby? Um, not a ton more. I was going to say, I think there are a few uh standout moments for uh Catherine Newton as serial killer um just but they're they're not nearly as many as Bond gets uh 
And I, I think that is probably a, a plot thing, but also it's, it's a little bit of a characterization thing. I think you're right. The, the, uh, the, the butcher character could use a little more, um, a little more depth. I mean, I'm not saying that he needs to be a totally deep person if he's like, you know, mentally disturbed, but I think that could go in some interesting directions. Um, and especially when you have kind of, yeah, the, the gender fluidity and body swap thing, um, we get some of that exploration, um, in, uh, in Millie in Vaughn's body, but, uh, I, I think it's also potentially interesting to see how that goes the opposite direction too. Uh, and I think a lot of the, the stronger parts of, um, of Newton's uh, Newton as serial killer. Um, this is yeah. kind of a hard one to describe concisely because you have to give like a caveat to everything. Um, I think a lot of the strengths of that performance are more visual um, and aesthetic than anything else, which I mean, it works, but it doesn't always have quite the same amount of of interest or excitement. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll say before we just kind of close things out here. Uh, I also enjoyed her friends in this, like they, and even her crush, like they all sort of start out as like stock characters and you're like, yeah, they're, they're just here to, you know, basically help us understand the main character a little bit better. But I, I think, I think what is nice about Christopher Landon's writing style is that he is pretty good at making like side characters stand out more or like taking side characters and making them more important to the plot in a way that's interesting and fun to watch. And that's what happens with these characters. Like they sort of start off as like the token uh, gay friend, the token black friend, but then they become like main characters in their own right. They really have a lot of agency and a lot of fun in their roles. Uh, so one of them is uh, Misha Osharovich, I don't know how to pronounce that correctly, who uh, plays her friend Josh, and then Nyla, played by Celeste O'Connor. And they have fun with the premise of that, like, you know, there, there's like a joke about how because it's a slasher movie they're convinced they're going to die first like it, it does those fun things and uh they they get to get even they get to get into some fun physical comedy as well in this so th yeah this is just a fun movie i i don't have a lot of negative things to say about it i think people should go in with like decent expectations but not expect like the best movie but like like i said before if, you're, if you see this at a drive-in you probably will have a good time it's making a lot of money it's a 5.6 million dollar box office which considering you know the box office lately that's actually really good especially because its budget is only six million and i have to imagine their marketing budget isn't insane i think they've really only been focusing on like digital advertising at this point so they could actually make their budget back and then some and uh the cinema score though for this is kind of low it's a b minus which i thought was interesting which doesn't sound bad but for cinema score that is pretty low like because this is like rating like people like walking out of the theater, I guess driving out of the drive and I'm not sure if they count for that. But uh, apparently not everybody is liking this. Maybe the gore has something to do with that. I do not know. Uh, but that said, my final thought on this is uh, go watch it. It's uh, fun. Uh, maybe not in a theater, but if it's playing at a drive-in, I, I definitely recommend it. I am a, a strong B, very high B on Freaky. Uh, but what about you, Will? How, how would you grade this thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll echo what you said. Like, I was looking forward to seeing this at the drive-in. I'm glad I had that opportunity because um, it is very much a drive-in type movie. It's, uh, you know, fun and campy. And uh, I, I think he is only getting more assured as a filmmaker. And uh, even though I don't like this movie quite as much as the Happy Death Day movies, I think it's maybe missing that Jessica Roth um, element that maybe I think might push a little bit more of the edge. I do agree with you that I think uh, it's apparent that Christopher Landon is only getting more confident as a filmmaker. And I think that's uh, fitting thematically with his films uh, because he's coming into his own and uh, really discovering his sensibilities and a lot of fun and entertaining ways. Um, as far as the rating itself, um, I was between a B 
and a high B minus. I think I'm going to give it a high B minus just because I really wish it was just maybe a little bit more subversive than it is. Like it felt like it followed too much of a traditional template for my liking, especially coming off of the Happy Death Day movies. But um, the performances, like I said, are key here. And I, I do think um, it is shot fairly well, too. Like it has like a nice uh, visual aesthetic to it that's uh, fun and bright, um, but not like showy or like too goofy or anything. So I would appreciate that as well. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, very fun time. Um, definitely a nice uh, thing to look forward to throughout a otherwise stressful and annoying week uh, with everything going on in the news and whatnot. But um, yeah, I had a good time. All right. And finish us out, Abby Olshesi. Yeah, I think I would give this a high B as well. Um, there are some things that could be a little more, um, a little a little deeper than they are, but I think as it is, it's still really fun. Um, and I think uh, ranks up there with, I think, a lot of other movies that I would potentially want to watch when I just want something that is fun and goofy and I know will make me, uh, will make me laugh and make me go ew at the same time. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's about as high praise I think as you can give a movie like this is just that it's, it's a fun one to sit down and watch when you feel like you need something that fits those, fits those criteria. Um, yeah. So a high B from me. All right. That is freaky. It is now playing in select theaters and drive-ins. It should be on video on demand pretty soon. This is Blumhouse. So we can expect that, uh, that, that streaming release to happen sooner rather than later. And if you're not able to see this at a drive-in, I uh, definitely recommend you seek it out once it's available to stream. This week's episode of Cinemaholics is brought to you by What the Phalange, a queer feminist friends podcast. Now, you may have heard of the TV show, the NBC sitcom to end all NBC sitcoms in the early 2000s, Friends, which was F-R-I-E-N-D-S as it was uh perioded or however you say that that show was very influential and it could use a fresh take could use a couple of people who have something interesting nuanced and intelligent to say about how friends holds up all these years later and that's what emily and quinn are here to do with their show what the phalange now to help me understand a little bit better on the comedy scene because i'm just one person i've never been a comedian we thought you know what friends takes place in New York City. It has comedians in the cast, I believe. So we should have somebody on who understands the New York sitcom world better than any of us. And that's why we have John Mulaney on the show here. John Mulaney, welcome to welcome back to Cinemaholics. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this ad with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real honor every time I get to visit Cinemaholics, which is more often than you might assume, but it's always a pleasure. Now, John Mulaney, I, I know that when it comes to podcasts, you love friends and you love podcasts. So this seems like the perfect kind of show for you, is it not? Oh, it absolutely is. I remember being a fan of Friends as a very young man. And the thing that's very appealing about the show Friends is that everyone can relate to it because everyone has friends. Oh. And so that's a little <laughs> hook right off the bat to Hilarious. reel viewers in. And this podcast lives up to that promise. You're so funny, John Mulaney. And it kind of reminds oh, me please. of What the Phalange, which is also a funny show. Because what's fun about this show is they do have a retrospective on the fashion, the weird relationships, and some of the ridiculously problematic jokes, but they do it in a really fun way. And I feel like I'm five episodes in. I feel like I'm learning something 
this this show from this show, friends, and the podcast about friends. What the phalange, John Mulaney? How would you say this podcast compares to well your sitcom that you did in the twenty teens? I'm sure everybody remembers. Oh, I'm sure. I I don't know what sources you're listening to because I think only I remember that show. But I think Friends uh, far surpasses that, if I do say so myself. And my favorite part about listening to What the Phalange is that they do it one episode at a time. They don't review the whole TV show at one time because that's not how you watch it. You have to watch them one episode at a time. And this podcast reviews them one at a time. So it's a time release kind of thing that makes it really easy to digest. You know what I'm saying? I think you've broken it down perfectly. So you're going to find not just episodes with like, they don't just say like the title of the episode. They put their fun twist on it. So one episode, for example, is the one where we don't get 90s dating etiquette (laughs) and the one with intergenerational trauma. My favorite one, the one where friends did one thing thing right. This is the one. <laughs> yes. I love it. You can find What the Phalange, a queer feminist friends podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so many other podcast apps I'm sure you love. And with this show, I think you're going to have a good time like we have been. And uh, as you deconstruct and diversify one of the most influential sitcoms of all time. Wouldn't you say, John? Oh, yes, I think you're absolutely right. But don't take our word for it. Go give it a whirl yourself. It won't take that long, I promise. Our next movie, we thought this was going to be our main review. And only Will and I saw it. Uh, Abby didn't get a chance. It worked out, though, because I I didn't think that I was going to be able to see Freaky. Literally, like the day before I saw it, I found out that it was playing at the drive and otherwise I wouldn't have been able to see it. So that that was really fortunate because uh, I think I think that was probably the more fun movie to talk about all three of us. Uh, this next film, though, is one that kind of came in with a lot of I don't want to say buzz, but more anticipation. I think people were kind of looking forward to see what Francis Lee, uh, writer and director of this new film, Ammonite, would be able to do with a romantic period film. So that film is Ammonite, and it is loosely based on the life, or I should say inspired by the life, of a British paleontologist known as Mary Anning. And in this film, that character is played by Kate Winslet, and she is a fossil-loving, self-built-up archaeologist or paleontologist who kind of lives in isolation with her widowed mother. And wouldn't you know it, there might be some sort of spark that starts up between her and a woman named Charlotte, played by Saoirse Ronan, who comes under her care. She is a despondent uh, housewife who is having to deal with uh, just kind of a, an irreverent, uh, unloving husband who has sort of like left her there while on a European tour. So this film is a uh, lesbian romance. A lot of people have been comparing it uh, unfavorably to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. There's been some interesting conversation about lesbian romance period dramas and uh, the people who make them and how authentic they come across. This premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival and it didn't get great reviews. I mean, I'm, I think like its latest like Rotten Tomato score, it's not super low or anything, but it's definitely not like getting the same acclaim that Portrait did. And uh, yeah, so it has like a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Uh, none of you say nice. And uh, oh, I said it. Uh, that said, Will Ashen, you watched the film. What, what did you think of Ammonites? Did you uh, fall for it? 
Unfortunately, no. I I had at least decent expectations going into this. Um, I didn't end up seeing God's Only Country, Francis Lee's previous film, but I know it was very well received. And I I know quite a few colleagues considered it one of the best films of that year. So um, I was hopeful here, especially given the cast involved. But it um, it just kind of feels like a template movie in this vein. Like it reminded me more than anything else, even more than Portrait of a Lady on Fire of that fake trailer in uh, Tropic Thunder. Um, I thought that too. Yeah. Satan's, Satan's alley. alley. <laughs> <laughs> um, even though it doesn't have to do with religion, it just kind of like felt like that film, like the, like the traditional kind of Oscar bait um, gay romance film that, that feels like it's kind of pandering to the Academy in a way that um, I don't know, it just made the whole experience feel somewhat vacant to me because I never felt like I fully got to know the characters beyond like two sentences. Like I, I thought the performances from Kate Winslet and Sarsha Ronan were fine, but it felt like, I've seen better work from both of these. I've seen better character work, certainly from both these actresses. And it just felt like their romance wasn't that particularly involving either. And because the movie is shot on this kind of like cloudy, moody island, it wasn't even visually that interesting to me in a way yeah. that I, I could at least like appreciate, like with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. In addition to being a really good, well-made movie, it just looks gorgeous. And the scenery is, you know, fantastic. And like this movie didn't even have that going for it. And I feel bad comparing it to that film because it feels like you know we can obviously have more than one uh lesbian drama period drama in a year time like i don't think there's no quota like we can have more than one and that's perfectly fine but it's it's just so hard to uh come off of that film which is just like a true a film like that's just such a well done film and then you get a movie like this which is like unfortunately i feel like kind of sea level in comparison and just on its own uh which is a shame so i definitely was underwhelmed by this one yeah, I have to I have to agree a lot. You know, I th- there is this sort of trope that people bring up where these like like you said, these gay romance period films, the hook of them sometimes, like the ones that aren't as good is just like look how forbidden their love was. Uh, aren't you glad that that's not uh, it's not as forbidden as it is today? And you know, maybe not everybody interprets it that way, but I just have a hard time like looking at like what the LGBTQA plus community is going through right now and thinking that this movie is like, you know, it, I don't know. Like you said, it's just kind of like pandering. It's just, it's not really illuminating or saying anything about this time period that hasn't been done before better. And it just sort of feels very despondent upon itself. I do think there is like a nugget of an idea here though. I mean, I think what maybe Lee was going for here, cause he did do the screenplay is like exploring these two very isolated introverted lonely people kind of coming out of their shells together there is something there like there's a thread of like you know finding who you are in another person and then sort of questioning that but other than that i think the screenplay is kind of messy when it's trying to relate the metaphor of like the the, the fossils and and all the work that they do i i don't know i just did not buy this romance i think another film that actually did a better job to you of like this idea of grooming where you have like an older person uh grooming another person sexually uh, i think clementine had way more interesting things to say that's a film that uh, kind of talked about a few months ago because that it's the same kind of 
uh, structure where that is about a woman who was in a relationship with a much older woman. And then she uh, starts to build a relationship with someone much younger than her. And what was really interesting about that film is it explored the the problems with that and how that can be problematic and it can be an issue. And so it's just weird, like in addition to portrait, like seeing this film just not really even be bothered with those dynamics aside from there is like a subplot with Fiona Shaw and and, and they kind of give it lip service, but I don't know. I was not invested in this one whatsoever. And I I don't really have anything else to say about it beyond all of that, except the performances are good and it is competently made. It's just, it lives in a dreary gray shadow, I guess. Yeah. I mean, lip service is a good term because it just felt like it explained a lot of what it was trying to go for instead of just visually communicating it. Um, but like I said, I, I, I appreciate that's trying to be a fairly subtle, subdued film. And I think, you know, Francis Lee is a talented filmmaker just based on what I have seen from God's own country and uh, what I've heard about his past work. Um, it, it does seem like he is capable of making a film like this work. It just, this one, I don't know if it just slipped away from him or if it just, he never really found the hook uh to make it work but um yeah it just kind of left me feeling like this is just a subpar film in a genre that we've seen a decent bit recently and i think ultimately i've seen done better for the most part in other films but um yeah i mean i don't think it's necessarily like terrible or anything like i don't think it it's poorly made like i think it's fine like a lot of the elements of it are done decently enough i suppose but it, it just because it doesn't rise to the occasion because it doesn't do anything that we haven't seen better in other films. I just found myself feeling pretty dull and finding myself feeling pretty bored, but what I ultimately found to be a fairly drab film and uh, one that didn't really engage me emotionally or psychologically, which is like I said, it's a shame because I was looking forward to it. I was hoping this would be a film and I guess it is still an Oscar contender for neon, but I don't know if they're going to be more receptive to this film than we were. Yeah, I, I'm a C plus on this one. And I think one of the most blatant things about it, you can really tell that even though it's a mostly female cast between Kate Winslet, Saoirse Ronan, Gemma Jones, and Fiona Shaw, you can really tell that like it was directed and written by a man. Uh, two out of three of the producers were men. Uh, the cinematography is by a man. And it's not to say that men can't do this sort of movie well. Of course, that's true. But you can just really tell that like, you, it is missing something by my estimation that I think uh, more women behind the camera might have been able to help capture because I think it's it's a really hard thing to do. And I'll, I'll reiterate because I know some people might listen to that and say, well, you don't think men can do. No, yeah, they can. We know men can make stories like this. Women can make uh, you know, gay romances with men and do it pretty well. But I do think that there is like you know, by my estimation, just a missing ingredient. And I think that is somebody who really understands the female perspective. And that likely could have been a woman, uh, more than one woman uh, behind the camera here. Yeah. I mean, especially when there's something that feels so vacant throughout the film, you can't help but wonder if that might have been the uh, the key that was missing here. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little low. Yeah, for sure. Um, for me, I'm a little bit lower. I guess I'm a C on it, like a kind of low C, truth be told, just because I, just thinking back on it, I just, there's not a lot here that really grabbed me. Like I can't even just be like, well, that worked or like, well, that was good. Like, cause like I just found it all to be a fairly mediocre film from clearly a bunch of talented people, but nevertheless, the output just felt fairly ho-hum in a way that I guess I wasn't really expecting. I was, I went in with decently high hopes and uh, ultimately they weren't met, but um, I hope it works for people. I mean, you know, we could obviously use more uh, 
LGBT friendly films for a lot of reasons, but um, I, it does make you feel more disappointed that this one didn't rise to the occasion for that reason. All right. Well, that's a C plus for me. C for Will. Um, Ammonite is available. I think it is streaming or not streaming, actually. I think it's, it's only, only in theaters. In theaters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. For now. I don't even know if it's at drive-ins. I think it's just in regular theaters right now. Yeah. I don't think it's at any drive-ins as far as I understand. Abby, you know, I don't think we've really sold this one to you, um, but are you? Are, do you think you'll check out Ammonite or do you think you're just going to skip it or do you not know? I think I'll probably still check it out. I still have kind of a, a moderate amount of curiosity about this, but yeah, I'm I'm kind of sorry to hear that it kind of panders to all the stuff that that folks were afraid that it might. So that's that's a bit of a bummer. I also find it kind of interesting and odd that Neon is distributing both this and also distributed um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire last year. Yeah. Uh, it's possible that maybe they were thinking that since that one did so well that this might too, but yeah, it's it's kind of an odd choice. It doesn't make sense, right? Because they acquired it in January, which was like right when uh, Portrait was getting like its peak hype, I think. So uh, I can kind of see that 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 logic for them. But all right, you can watch Ammonite uh, now. And I think also it's going to be uh, releasing in Australia. I know we have a lot of Australian listeners. Uh, it's going to be there in January. So that's when you'll be able to check it out. All right, uh, for our next film, Abby, you had to listen to, to Will and myself chat and chat about a a female centric movie. So I'm sure that was <laughs> very uh, very funny um, considering. But this next film, you're the only one who had a chance to see Hillbilly Elegy. At one point, this was a film that I think some people in Hollywood were thinking, "This is it. This is the next. This is going to be the Netflix movie that really sweeps the Oscars." It's directed by Ron Howard. Uh, but uh, tell us about Hillbilly Elegy. Who made it? What is it about? And what did you think of uh, this this Oscar contender, perhaps? Sure. Uh, so Hillbilly Elegy is based on the memoir by J.D. Vance that came out uh, in 2015 or 16, I think. Uh, but after the book came out, it became kind of a popular book to read after the election because it had it. It comes from a perspective that that kind of reflects a lot of uh, the the Trump supporter base. Uh, J.D. Vance grew up in uh, Kentucky and Ohio, and uh, his his family is Appalachian, and he grew up in poverty. And so there's a lot of consideration of that kind of working class uh, working class rural culture that uh, in 2016 came out pretty strongly for uh, for Donald Trump, um, and. The book has since kind of dropped in estimation um, because it it while there is affection for the people that it discusses, for the people that it covers, it doesn't necessarily go into some of the systemic reasons why that cycle of poverty exists. Um, there are other books like uh, I would suggest Sarah Marsh's book Heartland that uh, that do a much better job of of doing that uh, as well as looking at. A, a more a, a wider variety of factors that affect people in rural poverty across America, um, but the uh, the film version of this stars uh, Glenn Close as uh, JD's mamma and Amy Adams as his uh, troubled mother, and uh, Gabriel Basso plays JD as an adult, um, and it switches between his experiences at Harvard trying to get uh, a good job interview so that he can uh, have a have an internship over the summer in the same city as his girlfriend, who's played by uh, Frida Pinto. Uh, and 
having to go back home and take care of his mom, Amy Adams, who has uh, overdosed on heroin for maybe the third or fourth time. And his uh, flashbacks as uh, as a child, his memories of growing up with her and growing up um, with his mama caring for him for uh, the majority of his of his teen years. Um, yeah, the movie has not gotten great reviews uh, since it came out, and I'm gonna unfortunately pile on top of that. Um, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, the uh, adaptation directed by uh, Ron Howard, and and written by Vanessa Taylor, who also wrote uh, *The Shape of Water*, uh, and so we know that she's—I mean, she's a talented screenwriter—is uh, is really bland um, and has kind of a rich people in Hollywood understanding of of poverty, <laughs> um, what that looks like, and how people interact with it. Um, so it it feels somewhat condescending. Uh, it also uh, feels very. Uh, very overacted. Uh, Glenn Close and Amy Adams are doing like capital A acting uh, in this, and that's not really a good thing. Uh, there's kind of really strong, you, you guys were mentioning uh, Tropic Thunder before. There are some Tropic Thunder vibes here too, uh, especially from Glenn Close's character, uh, who's under a bunch of prosthetics and uh, kind of a Brillo pad wig. Um, and there's a lot of cliches kind of sprinkled throughout. Uh, it it feels like a lot of cliches that are kind of wrapped up into what is hoped to be a inspiring movie, but really just kind of ends up being a lump of nothing. Um, it's, it's supposed to be, I think, inspiring because JD is able to break out of the cycle of poverty. But again, it doesn't really discuss what some of those systemic factors are. Um, just that like, oh, it's good. He just worked really hard and got good grades and was able to, you know, to get a good job and go to a good school. Um, his uh, which is bootstraps were kind of yeah you know, yeah his his bootstraps he 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 grabbed those bootstraps and pulled himself up by those bootstraps wow. um, which yeah I mean if anything the last several years have taught us that the that the bootstrapping myth is indeed a myth um, but yeah it's it's not very it's it's very unpolitical uh, I think they're trying to be as as um, widely applicable as they can be here but I mean this is. A, this is an inherently political issue. It's something that needs to be described and and discussed in a in a political sense and in a systemic sense, uh, because like the fact that the cycle of poverty exists is the fact that the that the country has failed people in poverty across America. And that needs to be discussed with a little more nuance than some people just don't try hard enough because people do try hard. Um, in fact, it's it's uh, discussed in the movie often how hard JD's mom tried. She just wasn't given the resources in order to actually succeed. Um, so it's, yeah, there's a lot of screaming and yelling. Uh, there's a lot of over the top, uh, volatility and it, it kind of just sort of blends together into very loud white noise after a time. Uh, I think it also doesn't help that, uh, unfortunately Gabriel Basso is not a terribly dynamic actor. Uh, he feels kind of flat a lot of the time. Um, I feel like the age difference between him and Frida Pinto is a little bit weird too. Um, Cause I mean, she looks great, but she's four years older than me and she's definitely older further ahead in her life than that, than, uh, than Gabriel Basso is. And so it's a little weird to see them together. Always, always f fun though, when it's like the other way around, right? It's not like the way. Older oh, for sure. And... Yeah. I mean, part of me is like, you know, get it, but also, I mean, they're meant to be at the same point in their, their uh, graduate careers and that doesn't track. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, there's, there's a lot about this movie that I think could have been better. It feels like lazy Oscar bait. It feels about as, as bland as it could possibly be. Um, so I don't know that there's much more to say than that other than there are like plenty of, 
documentaries, books, and possibly movies, although I can't think of any right off the top of my head, that address this, um, address similar issues in a way that is much more inclusive and uh, nuanced and helpful in understanding why things work out for folks the way they do in certain parts of the country. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I was interested to see this. I know from the minute that trailer came out, people were ready to sort of like be like, this is not the movie we want. <laughs> this is, of course, a lot of like, you know, film critics who uh, probably have never been to the Appalachian area. I grew up Appalachian adjacent. So like the other side of this in Virginia. So even though I don't have like a firsthand experience, I'm certainly aware of like just so many, so many terrible problems that are happening, the systemic poverty, the the coal industry and you know it's a very depressing subject and i think there is an opportunity for a film you know judging from what you're saying this doesn't do it but for a film that does explore like the the needs of these people and like what it, what it takes to find success in these areas where their like industry has sort of failed them and uh, people are sort of they're looking for a scapegoat they're looking for a reason for all of the terribleness and it just kind of Kind of interesting that it's like this year's Goldfinch, I guess, in a way where there were a lot of expectations, a lot of like award winning actors ready to sort of like get their next Oscar. And uh, Hans Zimmer is the composer. I mean, clearly Netflix wanted this to be, uh, wanted to really push this. But yeah, like you said, 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's that's not what you want uh, when you're, uh, when you have an Oscar campaign. And I don't think this one's going to get it, uh, get very far. But uh, yeah. Uh, can I ask a question real quick? before we jump for to sure. the next film. Yeah. Um, is this movie at least fun in like a like bad campy sort of way? There are some times when it comes kind of close. Um, I think it's, I, I was hoping for that a little more than uh, than I got, honestly, because um, that at least would have made it more interesting. But yeah, it ends up being fairly dull. Um, I will say that I like the Hans Zimmer score quite a bit. Um, oh, nice. And yeah, I, I that's at least one thing that I can't fault the movie for. The music's quite good. Yeah, and David Fleming did some of the music as well, I forgot to say. But okay, and uh, so that is Hillbilly Elegy, and I think that it's uh, it, it's supposed to be get in limited theatrical release right now, but then it's going to be on Netflix, uh, I think like next week, like by the time you're listening to this, it'll be like a week away, so. And time for Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah great right. Thanksgiving film, right? Yeah, just because that's that's what we need right now is a, a conversation <laughs> with the yeah. family about Hillbilly Elegy. I'm sure that'll be nice and productive and filled with yeah uh, that's you know, exactly what restraint what we're looking for yeah <laughs> sorry i just i just realized i forgot to give this a letter grade i, I would give it a c minus oh okay yeah um c c minus for coal no yes. minus the coal <laughs> if anything that's that's nicer than i would have expected for hillbilly elegy i was i was gonna say that uh I think it would be ironic though if the thanksgiving fights were over like whether or not the book is better than the movie <laughs> it's like nothing political. oh gosh yeah um I would like to be about the filmmaking. Like the mise en scene was not quite for my liking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that is Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, not sure if Will and I are going to check it out, but uh, Abby with the C minus um, two hour film. Watch it. And uh, all right, uh, we'll we'll see what happens. There's a lot of films to get to. I still need to see uh, like forty year old version and Dick Johnson is dead. I, I have other more pressing films I want to get to for sure. I would prioritize both of those way more than this one. Yeah. Oh, and also the American Utopia. I still haven't had a chance to see. So it, I, yeah. if I get through all of those. <laughs> all right. This next film Will and I saw, it is a another Netflix one. It is Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. This is a Christmas musical fantasy film written and directed 
by David E. Talbert. Uh, Will, Will, are you a, a fan of Talbert's? Uh, I know he's like a playwright, uh, but are you a fan of his work or familiar with it? Uh, I think I saw his other films, but I don't know if I remember them too well. Like, I think he did First Sunday with um, like Cat yeah. Williams. And um, he, he yeah. directed, wrote and produced that uh, along with uh, he's done. another. He's done El Camino Christmas, Almost I Christmas. Yeah, he has a style. For, yeah, I mean, genre. I saw both those films. Um, I guess all three of those films, because you mentioned three. But if you were to ask me to explain the plot beyond like maybe two things i could not uh so yeah. they none, none of them have had a long resonance in my memory i'll say yeah this one has a lot of star power involved with it it stars forrest whitaker keegan michael key hugh bonneville um and also you know i have to say i i this is going to be sort of a biased review i have to disclose that one of my relatives is in the film uh ricky martin is my second cousin and uh, he voices a character named uh, Don Juan. What is it? Uh, I forget, actually. Uh, sh- shows you how involved I was. Uh, Don Juan Diego. There we go. Wait, that's, wait, really? Like, really, really? That's, we're going to have to talk yeah. about that later. Yes, yes. Um, Ricky Martin is my cousin. So he's not usually oh, in like, movies and stuff. So I've never. Is that legit? Yeah. I thought you were just joking. I didn't realize that was real. <laughs> no, that's true. Oh, wow. No kidding. Wow. Um, Sorry, I'll let you go back to the review now, but I yeah. we needed to talk about that. No, I think we should talk more about this because I think it's more interesting <laughs> than the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the 90s were a fun time to be related to Ricky Martin, that's for sure. Um, we, were re- we were living that crazy life, you know what I mean? I was going to say, were you living La Vida Loca? Yeah, yeah. I'll stop uh, so Jingle Jingle is in some ways a very standard Christmas musical kind of thing, but in other ways it's very, very unique. So I, I want to start with that because... My favorite thing about this, and I think the most respectable, easy thing to appreciate, is that it is a predominant, predominantly black cast and mostly diverse film. Very few, like mostly people of color, in a big budget Christmas film, in a big budget musical. And we just don't get that a lot, right? Like it's just so fascinating and, and incredible to see something like this just exist. And that that for me was the reason why I went into this, like with you know, pretty decent expectations of like it's just it's really cool that Netflix would greenlight something like this, especially for David Talbert. And uh he'd also wrote the story. And I was one thing that I liked about this film that I w- wasn't sure I to expect was that it's very original. Like this is a, an original story, there's a lot of original music. And the the ideas behind it, I mean, it, it tries different things that are different, uh, not something that you would normally expect from a Christmas film. This isn't one of those Christmas musicals. It's just a bunch of covers of the, you know, the standard ones you hear on the radio. It's trying to be a greatest showman. You know, it's like that kind of style. And despite all of that, I really didn't like this. And it, I, I'm so sad about it. Like, I, I just was watching this film. and I just could not get into it. There are a lot of mistakes in this that you I don't think you would normally expect from a playwright. There are little things like blocking errors, staging errors, where you see characters moving before their cue. The, the first musical number is arguably the most important because that really sets the tone for the whole movie and it really shows you what this movie's musical attitude is going to be. And the lip syncing and the audio mixing is horrendous like it's so obviously lip sync and like usually you can tell if you look hard enough but for most people it's pretty easy to sort of just like suspend your disbelief but this film just does not have that 
Uh, the story is kind of basic. It's it's something we've kind of seen before. You know, we follow the story of like uh, a toy maker who uh, deals with some personal tragedy, and uh, part of it has to do with like his former apprentice stealing his ideas, and he's estranged from his daughter. But then his granddaughter comes to stay with him, and they kind of have like you know like a Christmas adventure. It's kind of sweet. It's it's very good natured. I know Will and I, you were talking about this like it's hard to be mean to this film and I'll let you discuss like what you thought of it now. And uh, you know, kind of how, how did you feel going into this? I mean, did you expect, I know we both saw this sort of last minute. I think you watched it mm-hmm. only because I had, you had seen like the first 20 minutes and then I was like, all right, I'm watching jingle jingle on a Saturday night. Let's go. Yeah. Let's, let's party. Um, yeah. I, I didn't really have any expectations at all for this. Cause I didn't know it was a thing until this week. Um, but I mean, I wrote about it for the site, uh, Cinema Blend, so I, I had some familiarity of like what it was, and um, it, you know, it, it, it's mostly harmless. Like, I, I don't think it means any ill will, and I, I generally think it has some charming moments, particularly because the performances I think from our leads are generally good. I mean, I think there's a few supporting performances that didn't quite work too well for me, but um, I, I, I do think there is a lot of heart and sincerity in the story. And I do think that they in the moments that are kind of smaller, and more restrained. I, I do think there is a lot of uh, sweetness and uh, emotional worth to this that I think helps to shadow over some of the more like kind of bombastic errors that are seen from the lackluster direction and the kind of ho-hum writing in my view. But um, I don't know. I don't really have a strong opinion on it. So and I don't really feel like it's really appropriate to spend too much time talking critically about a film called jingle jangle uh just because it seems weird to me but um Speak for yourself yeah sure enough um but uh i mean I, I at the beginning of the film i was definitely like you i was like i'm not feeling this like the musical numbers like the choreography is fine the songs are decent but like the way that they're blocked and staged uh, from a like production standpoint doesn't really flatter them. And uh, like, like it, it's clear that like you're watching people perform songs on like a set, like that you can tell that they're not seeing them uh, diegetically or whatever the word is there. But um, you yeah, know, that's right. Um, I, I think as it went along, I was kind of more with it, even beyond the ge- kind of genericness of it, because like you said, like there is, I mean, it's obviously, great to see a movie that's uh primarily filled with uh, a black cast and you know it, it doesn't make a big show of it but it is such a huge thing for a netflix a big netflix netflix production like this to have that and uh and, and i definitely think it works in its favor as well but um yeah i mean i don't know i'm back and forth on it a lot like i don't i don't dislike it per se but it's not the type of film i'm going to remember a week from now or even by christmas i can't imagine yeah, like nothing about it is atrocious. And I think that's part of to what you're saying. It's very earnest. These performances are earnest. I think some of the performances are a lot better than others, uh, particularly like I think Forrest Whitaker is actually like better in this role than like the younger version of him, which is like just really hard to watch. Like it just felt yeah. very forced. Reprising his role from Rogue One even. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's kind of a similar <laughs> personality there. Same haircut. Uh, I also... I also really I thought the the young girl in this journey played by Madeline Mills. I really liked her like to me. She, she kind of felt like a uh, the few, one of the few actors who really like researched to this role and this world like she fit in it like perfectly. So whenever yeah. she was on screen, I was like, yeah, I buy this 100 percent. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. The only like 
performance really that stands out to me as far as like this doesn't work is the young apprentice kid who even that character just feels kind of pointless to me like i don't think he adds much to it and he just feels like a quip machine like he should have just thrown in a couple blimeys and five joes just because that's all he really does throughout the film <laughs> is just comment on things in a kind of uh concerned uh pessimistic way but um yeah i mean i, I think definitely the core relationship between the um granddaughter and uh Forrest Whitaker's character is the heart of the film and it's what you expect. You've seen this type of thing several times before, but there is, like you said, an earnest sweetness to it that I think works its favor. And it does, I think, make it very appealing and worthwhile in the sense that you're able to connect with it and feel for them. But at the same time, like the story mechanics of it are just that they feel mechanical. Like it feels like the type of film that, you know, like a toy is being whittled and put together in a kind of generic and uh, predictable fashion. But, um, you know, at the same time, it means, well, it's a sweet film in an otherwise cynical year. And maybe that's just what we need, but I, I do wish it was better overall. Yeah. I, I do think this will work for a good number of people. Uh, last I checked, it's like number one on Netflix and, uh, to what we were saying before, I think a lot of people are going to watch this and they're going to appreciate it for a lot of, uh, you know, good reasons. And they're going to be able to suspend their disbelief in ways that I just personally couldn't. I was also expecting a little bit more of the like CG animation to come into play. I mean, there's like this figurine that comes to life and I don't know, like the story just never digs into some of those like fun storybook elements. Like there are transitions where they kind of get into that. And like from like quick snippets of the trailer i kind of got the impression that this might be like a weird sort of nutcracker bizarre sci-fi kind of movie and i got a totally incorrect impression of it which is why like i told wills like oh is this gonna be like the the weird sci-fi movie you review with matt serafini you know because you last year you did welcome to Morrowind, and yeah. you know, before that you did downsizing i was like yeah maybe this will be the one but no nah, i was, I was yeah. totally my assessment was and way off i would say it's better than that nutcracker movie from disney from a few years ago which i think oh, that was a better. mess way better that was a that was a mess. And that was a boring mess. I remember. And this, I don't think it's like a mess. Like, I think it's just fine. That's the word I'd use. It's like, it's fine. It does what it needs to do. It, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's, it's being a nice little movie for families. Like who can get mad at that? But I like, it's like, you're sticking up for the, the kid on the playground. Will, you know, like the bullies trying to pick on jingle jangle and you're like, yeah. Hey, hey he, leave he's this not hurting alone. anybody. <laughs> just leave him alone. Uh, my, my grades a C plus uh, C for Christmas. What about you? Yeah, I was between a C plus and a low B minus, and um, yeah, I'll give it a high C plus just because I don't like I said I don't think I'm gonna remember this in like a week or two, let alone by Christmas. But I, I think people are going to like it. I, I can see why it's doing well on Netflix. I, I I think compared to some of their other Christmas movies, which can be pretty bad, um, this one I think it's fine. It's not Claus, but I mean I haven't seen Claus, so I can't. I'm, I'm speaking out of turn. Yeah, I was about but, to say but, <laughs> you should watch Claus. Oh my gosh, um, that movie is incredibly good. But it's fine. It's okay. That's I'd I probably feel. be a B minus if this movie was shorter. It is way too long. Hundred twenty two oh, yeah. like, minutes. It's like oh. over two hours. Or no, yeah. I think it's yeah, it's like actually just two hours. But um, right, right over the two hour mark. Um, yeah, which is just unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, Come yeah, on. I think it's just a little overstuffed. Like I, I think there's at least like two characters in this. I think that could have been cut. Yeah, pretty judiciously, but um. I, I, I do think we haven't really championed the, the soundtrack enough, even though the songs are super memorable. I think they're pretty well produced from John Legend. Yeah, I think. And the costumes. Costumes yeah. are really good. I think if I were to listen to a soundtrack on its own, like on a car ride or something, I, I, I would enjoy them. Like the songs. Yeah. I, I just wish the, the visual element of it was a little bit more complimentary. My favorite was Square Root of Possible. That That's a banger right there. Uh, was your favorite Magic Man G? That's my guess. 
Uh, what was the song that Annika Nani Rose sang? Like that was like the song. I was like, okay, miles like, this and miles. The, yeah, that was like okay. This is like the Broadway number. Like, I mean, for one, like I was wondering, I was like, Annika N- N- Annika Nani Rose is in this movie. She's like, a oh, Tony you're talking Wing about uh, make it work. Yeah, like she's like a Tony Wing actress. It's like, why is she not singing? <laughs> and yeah, then she only like gets one song, but, ridiculous. Yeah, she gets like one song at the ninety minute. I was like, okay, finally, like, why is she not singing throughout this whole movie? But you know, well. All right, that is Jingle Jingle, A Christmas Journey. Not a high recommendation from Will and myself, but we have nice things to say. Abby, you know, I don't know how you're feeling about Christmas right now. I don't know how, where, where your Christmas spirit is at, but uh, is this one on your radar? It is. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of interested in checking it out. I like stuff that is kind of whimsical and fun uh, and kind of has a lot of Christmas spirit to it, even if it's not like the highest quality thing. Um, and I'm I'm feeling pretty festive this year, so I might, I might whip out some... Uh, some some Christmas spirit movie watching here sometime in a little bit. And when I do that, I might consider Jingle Jangle. Sounds good. Yeah, my, I definitely watched this for that reason. I was like, I want to watch another Christmas thing. Dash and Lily really perked my Christmas spirit. And uh, yeah, so on that level, it's kind of nice. All right, our last film this week is a dark comedy called Fat Man. And it is another Christmas movie, our second one for this week. Will, you saw this, and I have to say, I've seen parts of it because it was playing at the other drive-in screen while I was watching Freaky. So like once in a while, I like look over and it's like uh, past the teenagers making out. I did see like Mel Gibson uh, looking kind of like Santa. Um, but yeah, so what what is this Fat Man movie? Who's in it? Who, who made it? What's what's the deal with this one? Well, I mean, like you said, it's, it's Mel Gibson as Santa Claus, which I think is the like way that they sold this movie. Um, not only playing Santa Claus, but an R-rated version of santa claus in a uh dark comedy action thriller type role where he's playing a vengeful sort of santa claus who is uh protecting his life and livelihood by a killer played by walton goggins who is hired by a uh, young i i would say precocious 12 year old boy who got a lump of coal so he's hired him <laughs> as an assassin to uh take out uh, uh santa claus in a, in a mercenary fashion and I mean, look, like this is a film that I saw after um, Freaky at the drive-in. Like I was in a good mood and I, I just was just like, you know, it's a silly premise. This is the type of film that um, I remember people were describing Joker as like the type of film that's like it feels like one of those like edgy, like let's what is something but dark type like movie trailers that used to be a trend on YouTube from like 2008 to like 2011. Um, I didn't really get that vibe from Joker, but I definitely got that vibe from this. Like this feels like the type of movie that someone would be like, what if we made a trailer for like an edgy version of Santa Claus and he like makes puns and he kills people. It feels like they made a feature length version of that with Mel Gibson. And if you keep that in mind, you know, your mileage is going to vary. But um, one thing I think I really appreciate this about this film and the thing that uh, endeared me to it is that it's not like super meta about the premise. Like it's not like overly winking or like, you know, tongue in cheek about it, but it is 100% a lark. Like it's not like it's produced by David Gordon Green and Danny McBride. Like it's meant to be a goof. Like I'm seeing some reviews on Rotten Tomatoes are like, oh, this is a weirdly kind of serious film. It's like, no, it's not serious at all. <laughs> like it just it just playing the premise straight and dry. But um, yeah, I mean, I think if you find that joke funny for an hour and a half, that's that's kind of your personal thing. Like if, if you think that works as a as a movie or if it doesn't, that's kind of where you have to decide. For me, I think it mostly works because, like I said, the premise is playing it fairly straightforward. It does commit to the bit uh, fairly well, I think, in that, like, obviously, like, I mean, I'm not going to say nice things about Mel Gibson as a person, but I think he is a very charismatic actor. And I think this type of role uh, 
is leading into his like kind of more like trashy cinema phase, like where he's kind of doing some like kind of more like off the beating path stuff as an actor, because I guess these are type of roles that he's getting at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, having this be a weird double feature in the vein of like dragged across concrete, because I'd also start uh, Vince Vaughn, you know, it's kind of weird to have that as a double feature at the drive in. But I mean, I do think um, him, Walton Goggins and then um, Mrs. Claus is played by uh, a famous or not famous, but like a well-acclaimed British actress named uh, Marianne Jean Baptiste. Um, who I, I believe she's been like a lot of TV stuff in different film roles, but um, yeah, she's probably the best performance of this movie. Uh, just because she's like playing a like kind of uh, stern, uh, stern, but also like very loving and like restrained version of Mrs. Claus that actually surprisingly really works well. And uh, she she brings a lot to this performance that I think brings out the uh, emotional character work of the film that is surprisingly kind of strong, even though the premise itself is kind of flimsy. Um, I, I don't know. I, I just had a good time. I'm not going to like defend it too much because I think there are a lot of genuine criticisms that people can make. For instance, it's a fairly uneven film. And I also think that uh, it, it has a few ideas that's trying to explore in the middle about involving like, say, labor policies for the elves that are kind of brought in and then just dropped uh, once the uh, action kind of kicks back in for the third act. But um, by and large, I, I had a good time with this. I think it's silly enough to where like I was able to get a lot of good dark laughs out of it but at the same time i i think it commits itself enough to where it doesn't feel tiresome or tedium or tedious or tiresome uh as far as like what it's trying to do so i don't think it's going to be your thing john like i was telling you like if 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 shithouse is the type of film i would recommend to you this is the type of film like eh, i don't think john's gonna really yeah, like heavy this, but pass i have no sure. interest <laughs> sorry i i figured as much but um if I do you like think Marianne, like, yeah, I, I do like Marianne Jean Paptiste, you know, in addition to her TV work, like blind spot, how to get away with murder. Uh, she was in, in fabric, uh, which, uh, yeah, which I, you know, about, I, would, I think we have some, uh, apparel on cinemaholics.com called wind fabric and it's in her honor. Let's say that. Like I said, if you, this is the type of film where like, if you hear the premise and you're like, you're laughing, it's like, okay, sure. What is this movie? It's on VOD starting Tuesday. Check it out. You'll probably like, if not, you know. You can just kind of shrug your shoulders and move on. But I feel like a lot of people are kind of going to be like, what? Like, are we at Santa Claus movie with Mel Gibson? No bueno for me. And, you know, I understand. I'm not going to say this is the type of film that's going to work for everybody. But I think it also knows that the fairly niche kind of film. And uh, I respect it for, you know, committing to the bit and having fun with it. But um, that's me. So I gave it a B minus. I enjoyed it. Well, like Will said, you can catch Fat Man at the drive-in right now or in or on VOD pretty shortly. All right, that'll do it for our reviews this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, not too much for me to plug this week. Just my Twitter as usual and my uh, Alex Ryder review season one on The Spool. Uh, Abby, what about you? What do you what do you have going on this week? Anything you want to share? Um, I will have a review of the uh, documentary Collective going up this week at uh, Crooked Marquee. Uh, I also nice. have a full review. Yeah, I I liked I I liked Collective a lot, and uh, I hope to be able to discuss it with you both sometime in the near future. Um, and I also have a full review of Freaky currently up at the Pitch. If anybody wants to read more of my thoughts on that movie, sounds good. Um, oh, and I forgot to plug uh, one of our writers, Lizzie Combs, uh, did a review of Chick Fight, which we didn't have a chance to talk about or see for ourselves. But that's the new Melon Ackerman and an Alec Baldwin film, uh, and Bella Thorne. And she did not like it. She had a lot of negative things to say. If you're curious about that movie, though, definitely check out her review of Chick Fights on the website right now. All right, and then last, Will, anything for you to plug this week? Anything uh, going on? Uh, nope, just chilling. 
I'm, uh, you know, just doing my thing over at Cinema Blend and then occasionally at Cinemaholic. So if you uh, follow those sites, I'll be there. Sounds good. And uh, by the way, if you want to watch one of Will's favorite movies of the year, City Hall, uh, you can actually do that right now. Uh, if you, I'll plug the Roxy Theater in San Francisco. They have a virtual cinema and you can watch City Hall there. And then also, Will, one of your art house theaters in Pennsylvania is also showing it. So uh, listeners could support that theater as well, if you can remind me. Yeah, they're, it's playing at the Row House. It's also playing at my uh, college art house theater, the Athena Cinema, which I've plugged on the show before. But I'm always happy to plug. It's playing there. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's well worth your money. It's uh, <laughs> it's a very long film, so you're going to get your money's worth if you enjoy it, I hope. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely recommend any of those locations for virtual cinemas. Absolutely. That'll do it for our show this week. We'll see you all next week from the Internet California. I'm Will Ashton. Oh, sorry. John Negroni. That's right. And from the Internet Pennsylvania, I am John. I mean, Will Ashton. From the Internet Kansas City, I am, I think, still Abby Olchesi. See you next time.